to speak today on the topic of encouraging striving for growth without inducing unhealthy emotional pressure. Probably one of the primary missions of Alma Khanken is to inspire uh, students to want to grow. That is one of the primary tasks of, of any educator. <coughs> so, but unfortunately, we also know that a certain percentage of students uh, will respond to that pressure or will internalize that message of, of uh, aspiring to grow in a way that could, that could bring about serious um, emotional, negative emotional side effects. You have uh, students who become very anxious about how they're doing in school. Some of them become very perfectionistic, so nothing less than 100 counts. It's, in fact, anything less than 100 is a disaster. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and these type of feelings, of course, can lead to depression and other emotional, negative emotional side effects. So, and, uh, and of course, when it involves competition, which is very rampant in today's school, that's even encouraged. So when you have competition, it's, it's, I think we could all understand very simply that if it's very competitive, that will most likely will be more likely to bring out negative emotional side effects. Because of that, the very often parents uh, uh, resist, well, besides the students, students and parents will often resist the teacher's attempts to inspire uh, students to want to grow because maybe they've seen it in themselves, maybe they had emotionally unhealthy side effects to the pressure to grow, they may have seen it in some relatives or in other people, and therefore when they, if they see that their child is actually, their, their, child, their children are actually listening to the teachers and are internalizing those messages, it can sometimes get them anxious. Now, so of course that puts a teacher in a quandary. After all, the teacher, this is their task. They're supposed to inspire the, 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 the students to want to grow, right? So they, they, they uh, right? So that's that, that's what they want to do. Uh, you know, the the, the the teachers will often resist that pressure, or what they consider to be pressure, they're afraid that the child might internalize the desire to grow in a very unhealthy way. We also sometimes, as teachers, could sometimes think that the, the students are simply being lazy, that they don't want to they don't want to internalize our message, they don't want to strive to grow, because we think it's easier for them, you know, whatever the little bit they do, they're yaitsu with that already, and they don't have to do any more. So we can only ask ourselves these questions, the following questions I want to address. First of all, is it inevitable? Is it inevitable that children, uh, that students will respond or will in, will manifest their their aspirations for growth in an unhealthy way? Could be maybe it's a certain percentage percentages of students will respond that way. Just like medication, you give antibiotic, a certain percentage of children will will have a, a, a reaction to it, right? They'll have they'll be allergic to it. So maybe it's inevitable, or maybe there's something we can do about it. Also, are some students more vulnerable than others? Is it just a matter of chance which students will internalize it in a negative way? Or is it maybe there's something specific in certain students that make them more vulnerable to react to the, pre the, the aspiration to growth in a way that's emotionally unhealthy, in a pressuring, anxiety-provoking way? And if, the, if some students are more vulnerable, is there any way for us to identify who those students are? And most important, I think the most important question, are there things that we can do as teachers to encourage students to aspire for growth while minimizing the risk that will be internalized in, in, a, in an emotionally unhealthy way? So first of all, I want to address 
because I, I, I very often, unfortunately, see the results when, when students internalize it in an unhealthy way. We see this so frequently, students who were considered the stars in their class, and, and years later, because you usually don't see it in the younger grades. I understand most of the teachers here teach younger grades. When the, when the kids are younger, the ones who do well, sometimes the best students, the ones who are the stars, the perfect children, are, are the ones who later on, when they're very often left school already, the teacher has, you know, hasn't seen them in years, and you see the negative consequences year late, years later. So I want to explain what, what are some of the ways that students internalize uh, these messages, or the, uh, and those, what does it look like inside a child's head? What are the cognitive distortions that children have that that will be experienced as negative? You know that the way the child will internalize the message of wanting to grow. So first of all, many students, with, with the way they pick it up, for reasons that we'll discuss later, why they internalize it this way, is that anybody who aspires for spiritual growth must ignore their emotional needs. That's how they look at it. Emotional needs are for people who are not spiritual. So then they have to reckon, as they say in Yiddishua, with their emotional needs. But somebody who's really a, a spiritual person, that, that's something that they can ignore. They look at themselves as human doings, not as human beings, someone once put it. Can I just clarify that question? You're yeah. saying that in a child's head, it's mutually exclusive? If I want to grow in Ruchnius... For some, yes. For some, yes. if I want to grow in Ruchnius, then I have to ignore my emotional needs. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm saying by everybody. Obviously, there are some who want to grow wonderfully and don't have that issue, but I'm, I'm looking at the ones who, if we can minimize the amount of kids who do it the wrong way. Okay, so for instance, the way, the, way, the way I see it in my office, if I'm speaking to someone and I see that he, the person has like totally unrealistic aspirations or, or you know, for where he's holding right now, for instance, and I try to point out to him, you know, maybe, maybe that's a little bit beyond, you know, maybe let's try something a little bit more closer to where you are, they'll answer me, technically I can do it. Which I think is kind of strange. What are you technically? What are you, a computer you know, or a machine? You know, if you want to know how quickly a car can go, then you see how you just see the horsepower that the car has, and technically you can do it. But we're talking about a human being. What do you technically? You have to deal. Are you emotionally ready to do that? Is it? Is it? You know, would you be able to handle it emotionally? And they somehow think that that's a puzzle. They're not supposed to be thinking about that. They're just supposed to think about technically what they can do. In fact, recently, this just happened a few weeks ago. I was speaking to a young man who whose Rosh Hashiva had suggested he go to therapy. He, he, he found it very painful to talk about his feelings. He didn't really want to continue. So he told me he was going to speak to his Rosh Hashiva and ask his Rosh Hashiva. I meet him the next week. He tells me the Rosh Hashiva said he should continue. He should continue. I said, did you tell your Rosh Hashiva that you actually don't want to continue? I understand he might tell you to continue anyway, which is fine. But did you tell him that you don't want to continue? He says, no, you're not supposed to do that. He thought that was like the strangest idea. It's like going to a rub asking if the chicken is kosher or not, and you're going to tell him you're, you're psyched. You know, he, he thought that would be very strange. It would be improper that he should tell the Rosh Hashiva. I said, you know, that he should tell the Rosh Hashiva what he feels about it. I said, I said, don't you think your Rosh Hashiva should take that into Hejvin when he's calculating whether he should recommend to you to continue or not, whether you want to continue? That was very strange to him. It's for this reason that why a lot of times, I think you see this often by older kids maybe, but when even when teachers see that a student is is internalizing these messages in an unhealthy way and you tell the student to slow down you know to, to take a little easier rest more relax more almost always they reject it because in their eyes they see that that you're looking at them as a non-spiritual person 
Because if you've looked at him as a spiritual person, you wouldn't tell him to slow down. Slowing down is just for not, not for people who are interested in Ruchniyas. So therefore, they very often reject the, that advice. And related to that is, is that people, they have another internal message that they have, or a mindset, is that happiness, again, is not for people. People who are not interested in spirituality, they have to think about whether they're besimcha or not, or if doing this, they can do this besimcha or not. That's not for people who are spiritually motivated. They're not supposed to think about those things. And this usually, that, that's why when you, you tell, when we, when we learn in, in Avos that one of the Memchaz Zvarim Shatari Niknes Bahem is, is, is being Samech B'chalkai, they assume that's only going on Gashmias. In fact, most adults think it's only going on Gashmias. Most adults think that, you know, when it comes to Ruchias, Chash that you should think that, that you should be Samech B'chalkai. No, when it comes to money and, and, and mundane things, matters, mundane acquisitions, so then you should be Samech B'chalkai. But in Ruchias, Chash Shalom, which we'll see later on, that's not the case. These, pe- these people have these uh, type of thinking will, will sometimes believe if they did something perfectly, then maybe they'll ought to be happy with themselves. Oh, if you did it 100%, no, sure, then, then you can be happy with yourself. But anything less than perfect is, is, is terrible. In fact, if I tried to point out to someone once that, you know, they say they, they did something, they did it fairly well. I said, were you able to be pleased with it? Were you able to be proud of yourself? They'll say, no, of course not. It could have been done better. I could have done it better. The mere fact that they could have done it better means that they're not allowed to be satisfied with it or happy with it. I, I was asking, can you imagine if somebody would gone over to the Chazanish on any given day and ask him, could you have learned better today? Would he have ever answered you no? I mean, that's, that's such a, a, a not reasonable criteria. There's another popular saying that, that kids often hear. Uh, it's a play on the word Vilna Gayan. Vilna Kemenzayna Gayan. Right? So therefore the kids make them feel guilty. If he's not a guy, and then there's something wrong with him. That he doesn't want to be a guy. Because if he wanted to be a guy, that's all it would take. If he's a guy, a guy. Somehow no kid ever thinks to ask his Rebbe, and the Rebbe will design a guy. How come the Rebbe's not a guy? Not if they don't think of it, they don't have the nerve to ask it, but if that's all it takes, how come the Rebbe is not a guy? So, of course, all these type of thoughts, thinking that, that less than perfect is terrible, thinking that you're not supposed to be happy, thinking you can ignore your emotional needs, and what ends up happening is there's a tremendous amount of self-criticalness and there's dissatisfaction and that leads to a tremendous amount of emotional distress. Now, of course, when there's a lot of competition, which is today very much encouraged with all the contests and prizes, this, of course, only brings out the worst of these type of feelings. Because, first of all, the motivation for growth, we're trying to inspire kids to aspire for emotional growth, for spiritual growth, right? And what we're doing is we're selling bicycles. Right? If there's a competition, you see there's a huge picture of a bicycle, and you say, you know, being the first one on your block to win the bicycle. So we're selling bicycles, not spiritual growth. So I, I, I don't think we realize the messages that we're giving across. Because really inherent in a competition is, first of all, the message we're giving is that everybody has the same topic in life. You're not going to have a basketball game between 18-year-olds and 8-year-olds. So the competition has to be, the assumption of competition is everybody's equal in the race. Right? So that's one message we give over. Of course, the, then the point is not to grow, the point is to beat someone else. This is a, brings the difference between healthy uh, uh, kin and unhealthy kin, which he says, Michal uh, Yehuda says that there is no healthy kin, it doesn't exist anymore today, so you can just forget about it. But the marshal that Ramatisho said over is that it's a difference between a housewife chasing a mouse and, and a cat chasing a mouse. The cat is happy they're mice. 
and the housewife wishes there were no mice. So the unhealthy competition, you wish the student was better than you moved to New Zealand so you could be the top one. Not that you're happy that they're there in order to inspire you to grow. And I think we'd all be fooling ourselves if we think there are any students who are like the mouse who happy that there's the, the cat who's happy that there's mice. Now, of course, I think when we think about competition, we're more sensitive, or we're very much aware of the danger that comes from the students of the weaker students who never win and give up. That's really, it's really that more than laziness that causes students to reject our aspirations for growth, because in their minds, what they think they're supposed to be, they're never going to be there, so why should they agree to just aggravate themselves by going along with it? What, what, what's, and of course we're aware of the fact that some of the top students, it, it's a problem with their midas, with becoming baligaiva, that's what everybody's aware of. But there's one aspect of the competition from the emotional perspective I think that most, most people are not aware of. And actually the, I was really happy, I, a few summers ago I had this close to speaker of the Leftwoods about this topic for about a half hour. And, and he's very strongly against it, he writes it in his cipher also very strongly against it. But he told me that this point, that the biggest damage is done to the ones who win and how it affects them emotionally. He says it causes emotional illnesses that, that the best doctors in the world can cure. I didn't say what he can, no, but, but, uh, but I've seen that. I've seen that the ones who we considered that we were most successful with in inspiring through competition, the ones who won all the contests, those are the ones who emotionally suffered the most because they had such pressure they were enticed, it's like gambling, you know, they always let you win a certain amount so that you could want to come come again, right? So, so uh, the ones who, who, who went in for it and, and had tremendous, especially ones who have problems with self-esteem, and this gave them tremendous, uh, rather, you know, make them feel very good about themselves and very proud and impressed with everybody else, they become addicted to it. One, one, one fellow, very, very bright, told me that his yeshiva is a yeshiva out of town, he said he won every contest. There wasn't a contest of his years in, in, in school that he didn't win. And he said he dreaded every new contest that came out because he felt such a tremendous pressure. To him, if he wouldn't have won the contest, it would have been worse than a disaster. Now, a lot of times, as I said, when there's, the kids are younger, we don't see this. It comes out often when the kids are older. And sometimes in ways that are very mysterious and nobody's the wiser where it comes from. It very often comes out in psychosomatic symptoms. People have chronic headaches, chronic backaches and uh, other type of somatic symptoms that nobody connects to these internalized problems that really nobody's aware of. What's really particularly sad about the whole thing is that it doesn't really even work <laughs> because it's short-term gains. There's a tremendous amount of research on this subject uh, that, um, uh, you know, that shows clearly that extrinsic prizes and, and, and incentives actually undermine intrinsic motivation. So there's a tremendous amount, it has the opposite effect of what we expect. Uh, even though we could all quote from Chazal, textually from Balishma, from the Chinuch, if you actually look into it, the Dessler says in countless hundreds of places in the Mishnah Meliyahu, he talks about how dangerous Lelishma is, how poisonous it is, and it's only under very, very specific circumstances that it becomes Lelishma, not like we think it's automatic, it's like the laws of gravity, uh, you know, some law of nature that automatically becomes uh, Lelishma. But Chaim Friedlander also extensively discusses it, uh, that, you know, Achar Pulos and Shachos Halavavos is only in very, very specific, isolated, very, you have many, many conditions for that to happen, it doesn't happen automatically. And most of all, I just saw recently in, in, in um, 
brought down from the Maratzchias and the Gittin, it brings down there that uh, about a certain about Rabbi Yehuda, they were being the Shabbat Rabbi Yehuda, that he was a Chacham like Shekeyirtzeh, that he, he was a Chacham on demand. So the Maratzchias explains that usually even very smart people, if they're under a lot of emotional stress, if they're, if they're you know, frustrated, if they're, if they're angry, or, you know, or, or if they're in a matzah of kina, then minds don't work. And Rebuda was a rare exception that his mind worked under all circumstances. But normally, when people, when we induce kina, we're actually making it that the mind can't work. It's incredible that we think it's a good idea. But it usually creates that type of feeling that uh, makes it that it doesn't work. But Matisho Salman says in his Sefer that one of the most common obstacles to growth is competition to be the best and to be light, and he writes there has no connection to kinesiphon. But we always throw around kinesiphon type of chachma. All the Gedolim says that what we experience today there is no resemblance to kinesiphon. Okay. Now one of the problems is like this: that if somebody has doesn't have good self-esteem, they try to fix the problem by impressing other people. In fact. The, the way we commonly say it is when we, when, 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 I think most teachers, when you're dealing with a child who you see doesn't have self-esteem, we say you got to find something they're good at and give them an opportunity to be successful, based on the assumption that being successful automatically creates self-esteem. It, again, it's surprising we believe that because I think every one of us here is familiar with somebody who has, who's amazingly successful, has zero self-esteem. Might even be us, but we certainly know somebody like that. Right? So it's obvious that, that, that success does not automatically produce self-esteem. Because many people, especially ones who don't have self-esteem, are focusing on other esteem, the term that I invented, right? So you're, not, you're not trying to, to impress yourself, you're trying to impress other people, and, and you're not even thinking about yourself. You're, not even, you're filling the wrong tank in the car, you're putting gas into where the, 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 you know, where the engine fluid is supposed to go or something else, you're, you're in the wrong place. Now, the re this creates a tremendous amount of vulnerability, if you think about it, because if, if you measure yourself, your worth, by internal standards, so you could say, you know, based on my standards, what I think I should be accomplishing or doing, I'm not doing such, I'm doing a pretty decent job. I can be happy with myself. If it's dependent on what other people are thinking about you, how could you be certain? Let's say after this speech here today, people can come up and say it was wonderful. Let's say if I'm in doubt myself, if I don't know, if I don't have any way of measuring myself how well I prepared or how well it went, then of course, one thing about you know, it was terrible. <laughs> of course, you say the one. Once I have doubt, what people say doesn't doesn't help anymore. When I point out to patients that say who gave a speech or did something else, and people complimented them, and I see that they got nothing from it, I say, well, it sounded like people, you know, gave you some positive feedback. It'll be like I'm crazy. And what do you think they're going to do? Come tell me it was terrible. Of course they tell me it's nice. What does that have to do with anything? I, I had a patient once who actually spoke. He was honored at a dinner by some by Shul or some. And I said, and and he, he was talking about it very depressingly afterwards. I said, well, you know, didn't your friends and coworkers say nice things about you? He goes, yeah, of course they're being sarcastic. What do you think they were saying? So they've actually meant those nice things about me. They were being sarcastic. Of course, what do you look at me like? You know, like I'm stupid. Like what, what was I thinking? Right. So once once your feelings about yourself are are, are all coming from what other what you, you know, trying to impress other people, it makes a person very psychologically vulnerable. Somebody once told me some some young man who was trying to tell me how how um, how nobody liked him. So I know he he always spoke very highly of his Rebbe Nachman who I I've heard from other people as a reputation of being a very loving, caring person. 
and very much beloved by his Talmudim. I said, well, it sounded like he liked you. Because he, he's such a tzaddik, he loves everybody. <laughs> right? It had nothing to do with, it didn't show him that being loved by this Rebbe didn't have anything to do with him. It just, because that Rebbe could love such a low life such as himself, it only proves what a tzaddik the Rebbe was. <laughs> this Rebbe actually asked me once, how come so many of this Talmud, because he deals mostly with Talmud who are having difficulties and struggling, how come they do so well when they're in Eretz Yisrael and then they unravel when they come back to America? I said, because you never taught them to like themselves. You just teach them that you like them, but you never focus on them liking themselves. So as long as they're around you, they're plugged into the machine, you know, they're fine. As soon as you unplug them, runs out of juice. Now, one, one variation of this, of the need to please others, that's very common, is students who do very well because they want to bring knuckles to their parents. Right? Now, it may sound very strange as if this could possibly be a problem. I think all parents would love if their kids would do things to give them nachas. So let me read you something that Rabbi Yitzhak Kurzman, as I said, regarding children who constantly strive to please their parents. He said the following, You create in the mind of developing children the idea that the only way they will be accepted and loved is if they forsake their pursuit of self for the happiness of the parent. This creates a horrendous distortion in children's normal emotional development. In fact, healthy emotional growth involves being able to give up our need for approval when the price for the approval is the giving up of the true self. That's what Rabbi Kersner said. So I, 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 there's a well-known from mental health professional who's publicly stated in quite a few speeches that he believes that, that self-esteem must be something a child is born with, not something that he acquires. Why? Because he was his parents' favorite child, and he never, he, his whole life he's struggling with self-esteem. Said this publicly. So I think he's got it completely wrong. I think that's exactly why he has problems with self-esteem. Because his parents, he was his parents' favorite child for whose needs? For his parents' needs or his needs? Did he have a need to be a favorite child? I don't think any child has a need to be favorite. Right? It's probably it's very, it's not healthy. It's a burden on a child. It's for their need. He was the cutest, the smartest, gave him the most nachas. So he lived for them. Of course he doesn't have self esteem. He doesn't have a self. How can he have self esteem? This is not a chiddush. I think he got it backwards. You know, this is not, this is, a, the, of course, of course he has problems with self esteem. And sad to say, well, oh, so, so actually this is something that's been a favorite peeve of mine for many years. At bar mitzvahs, you know, the bracha that every single speaker gives to a child, they should bring nachas to his parents. I've always complained about it, my friends always made fun of me. But one of them had the intellectual honesty to, he just saw in the safer that was actually mechavim to the briskarov. Somebody once asked a very, very devoted parent, like how his children could ever repay him. He's so unbelievable. But one of the briskarovs told me them. And the, the father answered that children repay their parents by giving them a sense of immortality. They live on through their children. He later on told the Briskorov what the person asked him and what he answered. And the Briskorov told him that your answer is carved lofty courses. Because the Vaishnav doesn't give parents children to get anything for them. He gives you children nor to emulate Hashem by giving without a cheshman getting back. He said, which I will come to the second part too, that you can give the parents a bracha that they have nachas, let's just give a bracha to have parnasa. It has something to do with the child. It's not his responsibility. It's not his job in life to give nachas to the parents. Unfortunately, this is not a message that I guess most people don't know about this biskarov or ignore it. Because recently I saw a maised, I won't say where, because I think it's Lashon Hara, that a girl's maised that, that uh, 
having a dinner, at the yearly dinner, they send out a notice to the grandparents, they want them to, to give you know, donation. They already have a sample ad that the grandparents can use. This is what the sample ad said. To our very special granddaughter, you make us so proud. May you continue bringing us so much nachas. What does this have to do with the child's needs? Not, we're so ha happy for your progress, may you continue to make future progress, etc. No, it's all about bringing us nachas. It's the most wonderful thing. Fortunately, I imagine they don't read the ad, so that's good. Um, now, one of the, besides what it does on the deeper level of, of the, the, the lack of development of the self, there's a very practical problem. When a kid lives to give his parents nachas, then what if he has a problem, or she has a problem? Is she going to be able to tell her parents? I find this all the time, especially the better, the ones who are giving their parents nacha. And then they come to me, at a, at a, you know, at a, when they're teenagers or something, and they have a problem that's been going on for five years. And I say, did you ever tell your parents about it? I couldn't tell my parents. I caused an aggravation. Of course, it causes you know, five times as much aggravation up because it's so much more difficult to deal with now. Recently, I saw somebody who I happened to see his parents many years ago about a different child, and they just mentioned him in passing that he's the perfect child. And now they called me five years later, and I right away guessed it's a perfect child. I knew this was coming. When they told me at the time, I said, I'll convey to this kid in that book. And this perfect child has a very serious problem, a very, very serious problem. The parents still today don't know about it, but he won't tell them. And, and, and he gave him some other excuse why he needs to go to speak to the therapist. And I asked him, why didn't you tell your parents five years ago? It would have been a lot easier to treat. He says to me, I was the only one giving them nachas. How could I possibly tell them about it? Oh, now, what, what makes some children... I don't think all, should, all students are equally vulnerable. There's, there's certain characteristics or life experiences that make some students more vulnerable to reacting this way to our, uh, our attempts to inspire them to want to grow. We usually think it's misinformation. You know, if we see somebody, you know, saying Krishna over a hundred times, we think they simply don't know what the proper Mahalat and Avedis Hashem is, what the proper Allah is. It's usually not the case, and you can try, because when you give them the right information, and thank you the God of the gives them, I, I had somebody who went to speak to Ramayshu who told them to say Krishna once, and no matter how it goes, you shouldn't say it again, and it, I knew it wasn't going to help, I didn't think it was a great idea, but it didn't help. When I asked them why, I said, look, Ramayshu finds you, the God of the Lord tells you not to do it, like, why, why do you think you need to do it? In the same type of answer, as I mentioned before, he said, Ramesha is such a tzaddik, he, look, he thinks everybody's one. If he knew what a Russia I was, he would tell me to say it a thousand times. Okay? So very often there are underlying psychological issues that make a person feel the need to be perfect or to ignore their feelings and things like that. So first of all, certainly if somebody grew up, if a student grew up in a house where emotions were denigrated or just not taken seriously, you wouldn't be surprised if those students don't take their, serious, their feelings seriously. An extreme example, this happens in many good homes. This happens in many places. One extreme example, by a very hush of a person who had found out, this was a, even for me this was a bit shocking, he, we, the parents had just found out that their, their, their son, I think it was about 15 at the time, who was, whose learning and behavior had gone down in the last two years, they discovered the reason, because he had been molested for about a half a year at, at that time. When I was speaking to the father about it, he told me, the fair, she told me, that his main concern is, his main daiga is, that his son might use this as an excuse not to learn as well as he should. That was his main concern. His concern was not, and this was a regular, normal hush of a person. I mean, I'm not talking about people, very disturbed people. It just, it, this, this is what concerned him. 
Of course, parents who are overly critical exaggerate the terribleness of imperfection. Somebody told me recently that his, he was a very bright kid, he did very well in school, his parents would refuse to sign any test under 95. Okay? This, this, uh, this also happened a while ago. I overheard this conversation in the street between the husband and the wife. I was just walking by. The husband informed the wife that their daughter failed a math test. And the mother's response was, I know that, I even wrote it down because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. <laughs> I know that she studied a lot, but she would have passed the math test if she wanted to. Okay, so I guess the assumption is the daughter was sitting there studying very hard and didn't particularly want to pass the math test. <laughs> And this daughter, I guarantee, will internalize these messages. In the future, when she doesn't do as well as her great aspirations will be, it has to be that she's simply not trying hard enough. This, I, I, there was some lady told me that, that um, when, they were te when her daughter was learning the ABC or the olive I'm not sure which one, she saw her daughter was writing and erasing, writing and erasing, writing and erasing. So she looks over her shoulder and says she's writing, erasing good letters. She says, why are you erasing that? That's, that's good. So no, my teacher said if it's less than 100%, we have to erase it and do it again. So she thought, this is a very normal regular school, so she thought maybe your daughter is exaggerating or misinterpreting what the teacher said, you know, it could happen. But by a few weeks later, she was in PTA, the teacher was bragging to the parents that their, that their olive base or ABC, is, is, you can't distinguish it from the printed version. So her daughter did internalize, you know, did get the message exactly as she was told. Uh, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Kurzer, in, in, in a cipher he wrote about, about Tefillah, he writes that, that parents are the Bishim's ambassadors. Just like a country, especially in the old days before travel and, and, and communications, you know, all you knew about Spain was what the Spanish ambassador, and he behaved inappropriately to cast uh, you know, negative aspiration uh, on, 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 on Spain. So he said the parents, since obviously we don't meet Hashem in person, Right, so the, with the child's understanding, children's understanding of Hashem and what Hashem wants them or expects of them or reacts to what they do is what he sees and what he or she sees from the parents. So I, I, a few years ago, somebody who I know asked me for an Eitzah because his son, by mistake, opened the light on child. So a little boy. So the son was all upset and all shooken up, and the father tried to calm him down, reassure him, that's a mistake, it's fine, the wife was not angry to you know, that have my mistake. And the boy wouldn't calm down, so he's asking me, what should he do? I knew this guy, he's kind of a rigid type of person. I said, does your son ever leave his pencil in school? He said, yeah, yeah, it does happen at times. How do you react? So he tells me, I give him a lecture. It's being irresponsible, and if you're not responsible, what's going to happen in your life? You're not going to get anywhere, you'll fail, etc., etc. So I said to him, why do you believe, how's he supposed to believe you that Hashem is more forgiving than you are? It doesn't make any sense. Right? So these type of life experiences can make it more likely whatever aspirations we want to have our students aspire to, they're going to do it in ways that are so rigid or, or inflexible or unreasonable that, that they're likely to internalize in a negative way. Yeah. Hold it. Does it matter whether you feel the child is doing his best or not? Okay, well, see that, usually the way we measure that or the way we think about that is, is he doing his best? Now we can say if he or she is doing their best, of course we don't expect to do more than they can. It's usually based on our estimation of their, of their, of their intellectual abilities. Right? The way they're... Past performance. The, okay. The way it's usually said to, to I know in yeshivas is the way it is, if, if the kids are the right kids, so the rabbis say, uh, 
right? So since you can, who said he can? You decide he can. Why? Because he's smart. Is that all you need to, to do well in school to be smart? As we I said, quoted before, you need to have peace of mind. You need menuchas. You probably need a lot more menuchas and nefesh and cycle in order to do well. But some yeah. kids feel so good when you tell them you know that they can. It, it usually it's a set. So it's usually a setup for criticism. All my, all my. Let yeah. me ask you a different yeah. question. What can we do to instill? Oh, so let me get. I'd love time. I'd love time for questions at the end. Yeah. Oh, so first of all, how do we identify? How do we identify students who are are vulnerable? So unfortunately, there really is no real uh, fail-proof method of identifying. But one telltale sign is when it's too good to be true. You know, they say about a business deal. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. That's the same thing here. There's a, I once saw a quote from the Stipler, Misha Niroyalov, Shumakvit, the Mitzvah, Yosem HaChazaynish, Sarf Dika Akra. Right? It's probably not coming from a healthy place if he's more from than the Chazaynish. Right? So if you see, uh, uh, somebody, I was, uh, somebody once told me, um, Somebody once told it. Okay, well, I'll get to that later. All right, so how can we promote healthy attitudes while we're encouraging striving for growth? Okay, so really, ideally, I think if a child grew up, if children grow up in a home where, where their uniqueness as individuals is emphasized, they built to handle better the pressures at school. Inevitably, I mean, you know, you can't have school without pressure. It's not a realist. I mean, you can't even have a home without pressure, but certainly schools. You know, have a mission to do, teach, and, uh, and encourage certain things. I think children grow up with a, a sense of their unique individuals. That protects them from a lot of these unhealthy pressures. Uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, the famous quote from Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, uh, is that the, the, today's schools are like the bed and stein. You know, one size fits all. Either they cut your legs off or they stretch you. So I think protect a child from that. He needs to come, the, they, the children need to come to school with a sense of the unique individual. Now, I don't understand what you meant. I think if everyone yeah. understands what the sense of self means, I think they'll put everything into what sense is Sense of self. In other words, uh, okay. Teaching children their uniqueness. Right. Oh, that's really key. Can you build up a child's real self esteem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The true self. No, so again. Who is the self? What is yeah, the self? Yeah, yeah, okay. You're asking those questions. You can write six volumes on that. Each one about 400 pages. Uh, but, but uniqueness is, I mean, one way is like this, uh, just very briefly. Uh, uh, the way you could bring over the uniqueness. First of all, certainly not comparing. Obviously, that's a big no-no that's still done very frequently. If, he, you know, if your cousin can do it, why can't you do it? Your brother, sister, whatever. It's, it's obviously absurd. It's giving the wrong message, you know. What about, it, um, it, in line with what you're saying, Dr. Srebrenica, mm -hmm. how is it, um, how can that live side by side with uh, a parent trying to offer their children a family standard? Is it okay? Uh, would it fit to say, in our family, this is the way we do it? May, but if you at least also add that I know for you this is particularly difficult, okay? This might be more challenging for you, or maybe in the beginning you won't be able to do it completely, maybe you can do a little bit of it. You know, just acknowledge you, because some people can tell me that they can do it. I think in itself, or get, you know, gives a sense that we know that they're unique. In fact, when you compliment a child for something, that's not obvious. So a kid gets 100 and you compliment them. That's like a standard for everybody. 100 is a good grade. If you compliment a kid for getting, uh, you know, they're particularly find math very difficult and they even fail the test, but you, the one who studied, the parents would say, look, I know math is difficult for you and I know you even failed the test. But I saw how hard you studied. That was wonderful. You did whatever you can do. That would give the child the feeling that they're, that they're in need. Now, is, once a child comes, whatever they come from, to school, it's very hard for the teachers 
to change the gears of the Ankusa. What the child learns as a child is very deeply said, even years of therapy, because you know it's difficult to change it. So obviously the teacher, but it, it very much it's important for the teachers not to reinforce the unhealthy attitudes, which sometimes they inadvertently, <laughs> not realizing, do. Uh, somebody who I worked with for a while with about other issues, but he, he was a Rebbe in Yeshiva, and he became much more sensitive to these issues. And he told me he realized now something that had happened previously, a few years back, we had a student who was determined to understand his shear perfectly. And he would ask him countless questions over and over again. And the, and the, and the Rebbe would, 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 would compliment him. Ah, you're welcome to see somebody whose mom wants to understand it 100%. And he would tell the other Talmudian, ah, you should learn from him, take an example from him, how to be determined to understand the shear perfectly. And at that time he was shocked when a year later this person had a nervous breakdown. And now he understands it. So he was encouraging unhealthy behavior because, again, he didn't realize that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Now, the most effective way, I think, to encourage uh, spiritual growth while avoiding some of these pitfalls is, is not, to do, not to do competitively. Because I think that plays a tremendous role in the actual reality that we live in. It, it, that's probably the best way, to make it more personalized and not competitive between people. I don't actually expect this to be done, unfortunately, because it's become so much part of our lifeblood. It's in the DNA of, of schools and yeshivas today. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you uh, two sad stories. Uh, I, uh, one person who read one of my articles I've written on this topic uh, said, yes, he's already in the Islamic in the Cheder somewhere. He said, yeah, he talked to C's, and he, started, he came over to proudly tell me that he started a new program in his class. The first 10 minutes a day, we're learning Lishma. Whoever does it well gets a prize. <laughs> I, I kid you not, this was a serious conversation. Uh, somebody else, uh, who, uh, somebody who teaches a, 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 teaches a special ed class and wasn't using prizes and was doing perfectly fine without it, was told by her supervisor that she must give prizes. It doesn't matter, because that's the standard way to do it, so even if it's working perfectly well without prizes, she must give prizes. So, I don't really, unfortunately, I feel kind of pessimistic even speaking about this, because I just don't think it's going to happen, because the alternative to using uh, competition and prizes as a way of motivating uh, is, is, is to motivate through the relationship, okay? And setting an example and, and the relationship. Now, we've all heard about setting an example. This every single sacred talks about how important for parents and teachers setting an example is. They usually leave out the second part. Or maybe it's assumed, but it's not spelled out that the, 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 there are people who lived among the best and the most and the biggest and they didn't take the example. You have to have a type of a relationship or develop that type of relationship that a child should want to follow. The only place I've actually wanted one of the one of uh, Revolva's Talmidim wrote a sefer called the Das Beres Yochecha, and that sefer he brings out this point. I was happy that somebody brought this out. That you know, it's not enough to set an example. You have to have a type of relationship that the child will want to emulate your your example. Oh, so now, uh, so so what are the added the attitudes we should try to promote uh, by our students so that they should have an aspirations to grow in a healthy way? One is that specialness comes from uniqueness and not from being superior. Uh, I, I, there's, there's a chayodam uh, that says that, um, that uh, to, to the kind of mitzvah keep it out in its full glory, not just the basic mitzvah, machileu mashkeyu, you have to think your parents are special. So I brought to show, was one speaking somewhere and he said, and what if there was regularly average everyday people are supposed to be psychotic and delusional and think that they're famous? 
So he answered, no, they're special because they're special to you. So I, I, I told him afterwards that in my humble opinion, that's only possible they did the same thing for you first. If you were special to them only because you were uniquely theirs, not because you're the best in the class or the cutest or the smartest. So then that's why they're special to you, because their relationship to you is unique in the whole world. Everybody else looks at you as a rugby uncle, and to them, no, it's my uncle, right? So then, of course, that's why you respond to them the same way, because they are your special cheering section, subjectively speaking, not objectively speaking. Oh. Earlier you said yeah. you don't have to find something specifically for them to succeed in. There's not a steer to that. Right, because not at all. Even if they're not the best at it. Exactly. That exactly. I said they're only uniquely yours. They're only unique in the sense that they're yours. And that's pretty, uh, in the sense that you're a child. So I guess they're uniquely yours. Right. Now, um, so this helps when a child has this idea that they're unique. They're able to appreciate their own accomplishments based on their unique circumstances. That they have that ability because they're looking at themselves as unique people. Somebody told me about the Rabbi Siegel Zechitzadig Lavracha, the Manalim in Chaim Berlin, who was an incredible Makana. So that he, he, he always gave for many years the, the drasha to the 12th graders about continuing learning, learning forever for many years, whatever. In his later years, he added a, a sentence to this drasha. I guess you saw the times of change and we have to spell things out. He said, that that's that's true in a general sense. That's the ideal. It might not be ideal for you. That we discuss individually. That I think each Talmud and see what, what's ideal for you. This is what happens many times when children, when uh, just like in yeshiva it happens. If, if somebody's in yeshiva where they promote us to either learning forever or going to talk about just tire and it doesn't work for them, they're disaster. Some of them are destroyed because they never had this idea that they're unique individual. even though the Rashid himself would tell them that. I, I, I once dealt with somebody like that, and he was in yeshiva where they pushed our boss's tired very much, and, and, and you know, he saw it wasn't working for him, and he was like, great trepidation, whenever I went to the yeshiva, he, like, he thought the yeshiva was going to throw him out. And the yeshiva says, so what do you want to be? This must be about 15 years ago. I said, so what do you want to do? He said, I always want to be a doctor. So what are you doing here? You have to go to medical school if you want to be a doctor. <laughs> right? You know, it might be ideal, if for you it doesn't work for whatever reason, then you have to do what's ideal for you. And I once said something to Rabbi Feinstein, and they spoke about leaving yeshiva, and the Rebbe spoke to him for an hour, and after speaking a long time, he said, yeah, I think for you it's the best idea to leave yeshiva and go with whatever he told him to do. When he got to the door, Rebbe called him back, and I want you to know, this is not a b'diyevet for you, for you it's a l'chadchila. I want you to give this idea that you're a unique person with unique uh, abilities and situations, and therefore what's ideal for everybody might not necessarily be ideal for you. There's a, a, an incredible shiradas, from my elder Zaydi, from a Gesheh who's like Bloch, he writes there uh, that, that if there was, um, he, says, he brings down a medrash, that if somebody is a mevatel tayrish shalayla tzayrish, it's like kilo kofar v'akadosh barakul. So he says, uh, who can be saved from that? Who can say they weren't mevatel tayrish shalayla tzayrish? So first he establishes everybody has a different tzayrish. Some people need to relax their This amount of time, some people need to take walks. But he says, what if you got it wrong? You thought you needed, you needed to relax for an hour, and you only needed to relax for 55 minutes, you're five minutes short. So he says, since if you tried to get it exactly, you wouldn't be able to be Eved Hashem B'tiferes Adam. you wouldn't be able to be a normal human being, which people have OCD and suffer from this because they're trying to get it exactly. Therefore, that's part of the Lutzayach, is not to know exactly. That's also Lutzayach. So do your best estimation and, and live on that. Another uh, thing that we should try to, uh, an attitude we should try to promote is the importance of Simcha. It's, uh, the, the Simcha is important for everybody, even for people who aspire for spiritual growth. The Chazinish points out that you can learn in one hour B'Simcha what you can't learn four hours not B'Simcha. My son Ari, who's now a therapist also, he shared with me a very interesting part from the basic Yisrael. The Klayaka brings down when, when uh, Esau said 
Yikavu Yemei Avi Lomus, that he wasn't going to get Yaakov until, until he wasn't going to get Yaakov until Yitzhak died, because then he was going to be in Avelis, because he has Tyre, Tyre protects him, he won't be able to get him, but when he's going to be in Avelis, then, then he won't be able to learn, and then, uh, then uh, you know, then he can be able to get him. So the basic Israel asks, what do you mean? But, 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 but you lot of, there's certain things that Abel is allowed to learn. So he'll learn that, and they still will be protected. So I was going to kill him then. He says, no, with that type of learning, only allowed to learn Abelis and other, those type of things. That doesn't give you Simcha. And when you learn without Simcha, that doesn't give you any protection. Rabbi Yuchan says that's similar to Brasi Yetzirah, Brasi Yetzirah, Tavlin. The Tavlin is only one for Simcha, and not otherwise, which answers many questions. Um, when it comes to Sameach B'chalkai, this is really, I think, such a tragic thing that there are Bacharim, I see this when I work with Bacharim, but it's true of other people too, who are really learning well and they can get zero satisfaction because they could learn even better, and they think it's a crime. They think they're Ivan Avera if they're happy with themselves. They're shocked to discover, which many adults are too, that, that almost all the Mephorshim, I think I found one, I, I looked at know, hundreds of Mephorshim, I found one that says it only goes on Ruchniyat. Everybody, the Vilna Gain, the Svasemis, everybody says it's going also on, on Ruchniyat. In fact, Rabbi Sama brings down the Gain, and he says, most of the Memchas Dvarim Shatari Niknas Behem are things that you're doing now as you're learning, like Besimcha, one of them is Besimcha, you have to learn Besimcha. But Samantha Chalk is going out what you already did, so how does that help you for what the learning you're supposed to be doing now? He said, because if you're depressed and if you can't be happy about the learning that you did, you're not going to be motivated to learn now, right? Because you'll be depressed and, and feel bad about yourself. Um, and the, lastly, and then there'll be a very brief summary, and you know, being able to give yourself credit for less than per perfect uh, accomplishments is very, very central. I saw an unbelievable quote now from Amanda Weinbach, who's like inside of the world, who's recently nifted. One of his some even said, they had no patience for perfectionism, because if you try to do things perfectly and never do anything, then he said a great quote. He said, anything that's worth doing is worth doing lousy. Okay, so I think if people would have that attitude, they would probably accomplish a lot more. So to summarize, and then we'll have questions. I think parents, in fact, have do have what to fear of, you know, if their child might internalize these striving for growth in an unhealthy way. I think they're often unaware that they may have contributed to this vulnerability, but they have what to be fearful of. The usual underlying unhealthy belief, as we mentioned, just very briefly to go over it, is that they believe that usually emotions can be disregarded. They believe simcha is an unnecessary luxury. They're supposed to, they believe they're not supposed to, they're not allowed to be happy with their accomplishments unless they're perfect. And they feel that spiritual growth is defined by superiority over others rather than their own unique accomplishments. And as I said before, it's important that we shouldn't reinforce these things, especially by overuse of, of prizes and competitions. And the main thing is use an example and a relationship to inspire for true ruchnias without this, these negative side effects. Just uh, two stories. Uh, when, 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 when we understand, I think when Mahantim understand the value of relationships, they make decisions in a different way. Uh, Ramesh has uh, two famous truths about that. It's Usr Gomer, he says, to uh, tell children to snitch on other children. Common practice in almost all schools all over America. Is, is that, you know, so they even threaten or bribe, you know, you won't get no recess for next month unless you tell us who did it. He writes, it's Asr Gummer. Some group of Mechantim wrote him a second sh Shaila, you know, trying to explain why it's necessary, why it's important, why it should be Mutter. He said, no, absolutely, it's Asr. Uh, but he says that because it's teaching kids to speak Lashon Har, and all your other reasons don't cancel that out. So that stuff from Yitzhak Zilberstein brings down, from Rabbi Asher Sanola brings down this Truva, and he gives another reason, because it ruins your relationship with the children. So it's an important fact, and I saw an unbeautiful story from Rapam that brings this out. The Sefer just came out recently from one of his grandchildren, the Rapam, 
uh, says when he first became a Rebbe, one day a boy didn't show up to class. The next day when he came, Rapham asked him what happened. The boy gave him an excuse and said, I can even bring a note from my parents. Rapham looked at him, enough from you. Didn't you just tell me what happened? Like, why are you bringing a note from your parents for? When he said this over in Torah, he said, it wasn't really that he was 100% sure that what the boy told him was really accurate, necessarily. But how could he let the kid feel that his Rebbe doesn't trust him? To him, the fact that the kid may feel he put something over his Rebbe wasn't a big worry of his. He was much more concerned about the relationship. I'm afraid to say that probably that wouldn't be true today for most teachers and rebellion. They would be much, much more concerned that, God forbid, the child should feel that they put something over on him. And about the relationship, I don't think they'd be so concerned. I think if we do try to inspire using the relationship, the example plus the relationship, I think we would be able to inspire that children should aspire for growth without having the negative side effects. Question. I just want to know if a competition where every child could do something, the, yeah. the same, like in other words, I'm not thinking about studying or saying, let's say a, a thing that they do, let's say over Shabbos, you know, like things that they can all do. So I, I don't want to be unrealistic yeah. and say that we're going to totally abolish all competition and prizes. So I don't want to say, I think we, in order to evaluate, see, Rapam evaluated two things. The cost of the relationship and the child getting away with whatever. So then you have to figure out, maybe in some cases, maybe you have to make the head with certain kids, maybe you have to make the head differently. Maybe you would have done also, I don't know. But I'm saying, I think since we assume that anything you get a child to do in any which way is good, in fact, I'll tell you something else that Ramuthi Hutton told me. Uh, I told them, this is true, a parent once called me up and told me that they're very concerned about the kid, he was like, he's at risk, and he, he's very concerned, he dropped out of yeshiva, he's working in a pizza shop, he doesn't like his hair, his music, his friends, or anything about him at all, and, and but she had one pizza good news she wants to share with me, she got him to learn every day for an hour. Didn't sound like a fit into the picture. I said, how did you do that? He said, because he's dying to drive, and I said he could only take drivers that if he learns every day for an hour. I'm not going to take the poll here, but when I present this to teachers and Mechantim, I ask them if they think it's a good idea. 85% there say it's a wonderful idea, and this might become Nishma. That's the response that I usually get. I told this old from Mithra Yehuda, and his lesson was, he told me, anybody who thinks that this is a good idea, doesn't know the first Aleph and Chinuch. And I must say, this is a common perception. That's why, I, 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 you know, listen, I, there are... There's a, a saying, a, a, a rabbinical saying, you know, sometimes you have to use it, there might be reason, but we shouldn't delude ourselves that this has anything to do with it. If you're lucky, if you do it the right way, there is research that's done how to do it in this kind of way. There is, there is. There's a, what's, a, what's the two guys that do about it all? Uh, I think you, when you wrote about it, what was the two people, uh, what's their names, uh, researchers? And you've heard in, in Canada, there's two guys. I wrote an article on it. I've said, I, you can get the references there. It's on my website. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'm a little confused about is the Nachas part. When yes. you read about people, great people, yeah. I just read an article and yeah. the reason I am what I am today and yeah. grew up in America in such an atmosphere yeah. is because I listened to my parents. So I hear what you're well, saying. He, he may have listened to He listened to his parents. He listened to his parents. It was the stress of the listening to the parents and trying to please the parents versus trying to be and grow in your own, uh, you know, as you know, the other thing I it's like saying, I, I, I've heard the teachers who work with the kids at risk sometimes tell a kid who doesn't want to do what they're suggesting, say, do it for me. That's an awful thing to say. I think what you could say 
Look, I, I've been, I'm with you for a year. Have I ever said anything to you, you know, that wasn't for your benefit? You know, have, have I proved to you already that I'm only concerned about you, not my cover, not anything? This is something that you are not able to understand. You don't have enough life experience. Take my word. I want you to trust me. I, I've even dealt with patients on rare occasion. I said, you're going to have to take my word on this. I try to explain to them everything, exactly why I do what the cheshven is. I said, this is something I can't explain to you. It took me 15 years to figure it out myself. That's after I went to school for 15 years. I can't, you can't, I, I have to ask you to trust me based on our life experience together. Right? So, so that's something else. Now, if you have that type of relation with your parents and, and you really feel that everything they want is for your benefit, which all parents say that what they want, but you know, there, there's, there's a, a, a tremendous word from the Benish Chai. It says, amazing kasha. I don't know how, I never thought of it. It, 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 why does it, it should say, Why does it say, Kashe Yasa Isha's Benay? It should say, Av. He says, because no, Hashem is better than Av. An Av has, no matter how much he's dedicated to children, he has his own guide involved, his own, his, his own, his own uh, thing. It's not totally the Shema. Hashem is Kashiyasa Ish. When you're raising someone else's child, you get all the credit and none of the blame. Right? It doesn't reflect on you. You just get credit. Rebbeinu is doing 100% for you. I guess the closer parents or teachers can emulate that, the more a child, when they want to please you, it's, they're really doing it for themselves. They, they accept that, that, that you're totally concerned about them. Uh, you know, but, you have, but you know, it's like punishing a child. You have to be made on yourself. There's no anger involved. And they, you know, I don't know who would have the guts to say that about themselves. So I guess, and I'm saying, that there is a big thing. Again, if you understand the danger on both sides, then you can try to evaluate like how far. He writes about the, the sometimes there's, uh, this he told me this over, um, Ravitzak Lawrence. Is that the father or the son, Ravitzak? Uh, that's the son from Yishayim. We are Shlom is the father, right? So Yitzhak told me this, that, that, that the Chazanish said that if, um, uh, if sometimes you have a kid who by nature is very mevater, he gives in very easily. It's a blessing for any parent. If you have children, especially close in age, and one is mevater, you might be convinced game blood. Right? <laughs> I'm talking mevater. Yeah, to, yeah to, to the sibling. Mevater to the sibling. I don't know if you mevater or is making happy. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so he said, if a child does that, even if they don't do it to make happy, if that's their nature, you should not allow them to be mevater all the time. Because eventually they're going to resent it. So the biggest tragedies come out for them because they're mevater to you eventually, and everybody praises them. Ah, melech avatronim, you know, and he gets the crown, and everybody praises them to high heavens. Eventually he feels the pressure. He has to live up to his name, and he has to be mevater all the time, and eventually he's going to grow out of it. The parents should not allow him to be mevater all the time. So they have to be aware of both sides of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand everything in a general way. I think there's yeah. an actual classroom, the yeah. interaction with, just in general, just participation. Yeah. You want to get all the children to be interactive yeah. in the classroom. You want everyone to be involved. Yeah. So you're not doing any... I'm just wondering yeah. how you... You have good lessons, everything like that, but how are you getting all the children to be involved in a way that you're not promoting any self that someone's... Because when you promote one person, that will make automatically enough so inferior, but then you're, you're putting yourself in a box. Because if you're not making any... If you're not re reaching for the sky, not trying to promote anyone and saying, oh, that was an amazing job, automatically think that was that was a great answer. Automatically, by showing affection to one, you're automatically making the other ones... So then you do nothing, then you're... They, they, they say that... Uh that he used to say about himself that because he tried to become the Briskarov, that's why he became a Baruch Bear. He never had a have if you know what he thought about Rebarth Bear, about the Briskarov, he had no have a meaning. He meant he was aiming to get as far as he could. Today if somebody would try that, he'd be 
depressed out of his mind that he didn't become the briskerov. So somebody once told Rapam in a drusha, I remember Rapam once said it over in a drusha, that somebody once came over to him, upset at himself, why he's not like the Chafetz Chaim. You can't be, you have Shemir Salashim like the Chafetz Chaim. Rapam, I don't know, he always spoke very gently, he said, and I went out of my gender and I yelled at him, what shyness do you have to the Chafetz Chaim? So that's what happens today. In a sense, so I think when people are healthier, or have, you know, so then, yeah, reaching for the stars and, you know, whatever you get, you'll be happy. But, but I also want to say, who said, okay, it's a separate point, uh, to answer your question, who said, let's say you have a child who is too scared to speak up in class, right, because they're afraid that, they, you know, they'll make fools of themselves, maybe they're, you know, they're not, they have feelings of insecurity, <coughs> lack of confidence, try to give them prizes to do, doesn't call the problem, or any, so let's say you go over to the, to, Let's say you try to figure out. I mean, if you have time and big classes, but let's say no, you try. No, but I use it not quite necessarily, but who is it? I guess it's more content, but it's not. Yeah. It's done in a way to get the children to want to think. Because if you're going to sit in a classroom, yeah. all of us here know yeah. that the way it is, the children are sitting here for eight hours, and they keep going on and on. And generally, what is motivating the child to keep on wanting to read that? That's what if they're doing it for the prize. They're not, not forget about the prize. What are they doing it for? That's what, what they're doing for themselves to feel good. They ask I, mean, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not speaking here as an expert on education and classroom management. I'm just saying if we're going to convince ourselves. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, I, I don't claim to be the expert. I think I get prizes. Then I understood. What, what I'm trying to say is, what is motivating a child to want to always oh, so, have motivation? So, so it depends. If we motivate them, there is a natural, there is definitely a natural motivation to want to be successful. You don't have to create a motivation. It may not be. Let's say no. It may not. Maybe some child doesn't mind being quiet in the classroom. They know that they're good students and they're getting the material and they're learning, becoming educated. And maybe they don't have to jump out and raise their hand and wave and, and prove to everybody that they know. Maybe that's not their thing. Who said that's what a terrible about the thing? What about the kids that are fine with the 50s on the test? They have no problem. The 50s on the test? Yeah. So it's usually, is that natural? You think a child by nature wouldn't mind getting no, 50s? No, I think they're late. I think, so I'm not calling that. Yeah. I think I need, we need to help them uh, out of their laziness, out of their... What's their laziness? Wait, 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 that may come from laziness. Again, I'm not sure they're wrong. I don't know if you have to knock, you know, that's a separate title. <laughs> but to get 50, that, yeah, that's very rarely the explanation for anything, anything meaningful. No, no, because I like, laziness, saying a kid is getting 50 because of laziness is like saying that somebody is standing on the street and a car is coming right at him and he's not moving out of the way. And then because he's lazy. It's highly unlikely. Uh, no, no, no. I think they have problems with all I'm not saying there's not problems. Yeah. They, they love to play. Mm. They, some kids love to study. I'm not a girl kid. And then they don't need any motivation. I'm talking about the children that need to be motivated. I, with the warmth and everything, I'm that kind but of I know, I want to know. The most, very often we have no idea. I've had, somebody once wrote in, in, in a, something, when Philip Rante wrote some type of article like that, wrote, they once had a student that, you know, he felt was very lazy and he was harassing him and doing whatever he was doing, trying to get it. And then he found out that the parents are getting divorced or whatever. So I'm about a second. I was saying, why did he need to, it happened, he found out by accident. Oh, the guy told me, because one of the other kids told him, listen, through the Achia Targut, he found this out. Why did you jump to a conclusion? Again, when kids are doing very bad, not just not doing as well as you think they could, it's almost always an explanation. It's very often something going on at home. And if we don't know, there's nothing we can do about it because we can't change that. Is it okay? I think about the conversation. Yeah. 
I don't know from home too. So but I'm just wondering about, are you, could you give prizes or incentives for good work in your classroom? Where you're not putting anyone else down who's not doing it, but what happens is, is let's say, it's a girl who always dives very well. So you end up giving her a prize because of what she is doing. But automatically, while I'm giving her a prize, there are other kids who don't dive well, and then they can say, well, it's not really fair that Maura's giving them a prize because it's making me feel bad. Like, do you have to worry so, about the other kids that so, are not... But I tell parents what they do, they want to give a kid something to help them deal with something. First of all, usually the way prizes are given is like this. You don't really care to do your homework. I want you to do your homework, so I'm going to bribe you to do your homework. Because parents often use that question. I even try bribing. No, it's one not second, bribing. One second, one second. Okay. <laughs> no. The child who wants it. Who's, whose motivation are we addressing? Our motivation or their motivation? Most often it's our motivation. That's why we have to pay them off to do it because they don't want to do it. That usually doesn't work very well because they're only doing it for the prize. So it doesn't internalize anything. If, if, if a child is not happy that they're not doing well in school, and you could, and, and, and let's say a child tells you, I, I'm really not happy I'm doing well in school, but I, it's so hard for me after a whole day in school to come home and do homework. I say, okay, yeah, I really feel bad for you. I can really understand that. Would it help you if, if, if I gave you something every time you do your homework? Would that make your life a little bit easier? Okay, now let's say another kid comes and says, wait, wait, it's not fair. Why are you giving him uh, when, when you to give me? Because that's not your challenge. But for you, I'll give. I know you have a very hard time keeping your room neat. And stop me, are you happy about it? Are you happy having your table? No, I'm not happy about it. That's more challenging for you. I'll be happy to give you for that. Again. You can't do anything then. Like, I want to give, let's say, girls certificates. I, so that we can't do anything because uh, yeah. it's always making other kids feel better. It's not only what it makes other kids, the kids, that's only half of the problem. That's not the only problem. The problem is even the kids. Ramatusio Salman once gave a drush in his, in, in his, in his speech. He once gave a drush in one of his speeches. We have just about two, three. Okay, so let me just finish on this. Ramatusio Salman once wrote, he gave a drush somewhere. I have the tape of it where he explained. I think it's based on a desire. I wish I had the time to go through the whole story with Vikram uh, and Pazzi. Bottom line, he said, is that you give things not to, not as an incentive. You give it in order to create positive associations. When you put honey on the letters, that's not to go if you do the letters. They give to the kid, you know, without asking him. It's a positive association. They wrote off the article. I won't say where in a magazine, and, and they wrote all about incentives. I even went to check with them afterwards. I said, "Is this what Mazriyev said?" You know, I thought I kind of from Mazriyev. He said, "With favorite, it's not incentive. They can't. They, unfortunately, they can't." process it any other way. It's a processing problem. It has to be incentives. Imam said the favorite. Especially then, somebody asked him a question again about it. said, no, it's not incentives. It's a great positive association. Again, I, I, I'm not going to say anything that something is puzzled. I'm not sitting in front of a class of 30 kids trying to get them to do and jump through hoops. So I, I don't know. But it just we shouldn't think the fact that we get them to do it and think they're doing it for because they internalize the value when they're doing it for the candy. The right is the Talmud Rebbe, who's a big mechanic, he writes a lot about chinuch. He once did a he did a study, so to speak. You know, he asked his menalim of his meisdes to follow up on the kids who won all the content. You know, the shnei zafen. Where they're holding now, four years later. It was a sorry picture. You know, that was the point he was trying to make. Now the question is if it's only white ticket doesn't have. There are ways away, there are ways of doing it. There are ways of better. Or if it's a bad negative. Uh, it could be negative. It could be a, yeah. There is. Because it, it reduces. Is. All the research shows that it reduces the intrinsic motivation. It reduces it. They've done studies. Kids, kids, kids who enjoy playing, making puzzles. And it's a famous study. It gives the two puzzles. And then you give them a dime for either every puzzle. Then you give them another opportunity, free play, to play with. They'll play less with puzzles than they originally played before. I'm just saying, we just have to know what you're dealing with. Okay. Okay. <laughs>